business. The blog and podcast for game changers and innovators in the construction industry. Hello and welcome to another episode of the AEC Business Podcast. I'm Arne Heiskanen and my guest is Kaihan Krupendorf, a strategy and innovation speaker and author. We are going to talk about innovation and Kaihan's recently released book, Driving Innovation from Within, a guide for internal entrepreneurs. Welcome to the podcast, Kaihan. Thank you for having me, Arnie. I saw on LinkedIn something that caught my eye it was that you have studied at Obu Akademie. It's a Finnish university in my old hometown, Turku. Can yes. you tell a bit more about that? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that's um, I've I've gotten several business degrees from uh, you know, Wharton, Columbia and London Business School. Those were kind of the professional degrees. And then when I started writing books, I really got interested in this topic of that, that has to do with narrative analysis. And um, because of one teacher that I know has a relationship at Obu Academy and, and, um, and in, in Finland and Scandinavia in general really is kind of the, the leading uh, area of, of, of the study or the application of narratives. And so um, I got an opportunity to get my doctorate uh, at Obu. And yeah. so that's why I, I studied there. Yeah. So you're an innovation speaker. Uh, and I wonder, what is your main message to your audience when you speak about, uh, talk about innovation? Well, you know, my, my main message before I wrote this book was that there is a mechanic to generating an innovative idea. And that's what I've spent maybe the last 15 years trying to understand where do great ideas come from uh, and now my message has shifted because I started shifting my question to where do great ideas go particularly when they go in when they are inside a large established company and so my core message is really that there is this common belief that it's really the entrepreneur that is the primary innovator and that employees in large established companies they kind of take the execution or the scaling part of the innovation journey. But what I show in the book is that actually employees have the primary source of innovation in society. And so that employees are true innovators. Yeah, that's a very, I would say, even myth-busting idea, isn't it? I hope it? so. I hope so. Because, yes. but why is it that people in, uh, in, in large uh, established companies, they still, they themselves, they say that we cannot innovate. Why is that still the um, mentality? I think it's a combination of two things. The first is that it is hard to innovate from within, mm. just like it is hard to innovate as an entrepreneur. So when we heat these barriers, we ask, is it that it is just difficult or is there something wrong? And then they'll look around to see what's, could it be that something's wrong? And then 95% of the innovators are stories of entrepreneurs, which then supports this idea that this difficulty that I'm feeling is really due to the fact that it's obviously the entrepreneurs that are innovators. We're not meant to be the innovators. You know, the stories you tell, um, you know, tell you what's possible. So, you know, I think that it really comes down to that, to that narrative is the narrative that we hear are that of Musk and, and and Bill Gates and you know and and Steve Jobs right that they leave school and they 
go into a garage and they build something. And so that communicates to us that that is the true path of innovation. So we kind of give up and say, oh, well, here's the evidence. Obviously, we can't do it from inside. Mm -hmm. But still, we need those startups and <laughs> small companies. Sure. Yeah, because, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, you, you talk about uh, innovate, innovators, internal innovators who are passionate individuals. But I've seen CEOs and, and, and employees and directors and so on, who I, I think are visionaries and innovators, but they often find it very difficult to to actually get the message through and and that's especially because of the owners of the company because they the owners they they kind of fear innovation they don't want to take risks and spend money on something that they don't see the benefit uh, at once so 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 it's not an easy role to play so to speak yes it's true it's true there are conflicting motivations i think of a the owner of an established company that can conflict with new innovation so if a new innovation it cannibalizes an existing business you know naturally the organization will want to protect itself if the innovation grows slowly and produces only a little re revenue relative to the current business you naturally want to focus on the big part of the business um, and if the innovation has a higher risk, the likelihood of failure than what you are used to experiencing in the core business, you naturally want to avoid the risk, right? It, uh, but uh, you know, what I've seen successful internal innovators do is look at those things not as reasons that you can't innovate from within, but as sort of psychological realities. And just like when you're selling a product to a customer, if the customer rejects the product, you don't say, oh, there's something wrong with the customer. You try to understand the psychology of the customer mm. and frame and shape the solution so that they embrace it. And so I think that's the work that successful internal innovators do well, uh, is to understand the psychology of the organization and shape the idea or shape the messaging idea or how the idea is uh, propagated through the organization uh, just as you would if you're selling a product in a market, the, that adoption curve. And so that, that's part of the journey. There's been a good deal of research on uh, serial, what they call serial innovators, people who innovate multiple times from within. And the overall conclusion from that research is that a key to is that innovators view the pollution as part of the problem-solving process. So if we could shift our kind of mindset and say, there's nothing wrong, naturally, the organization will want have a propensity away from certain types of innovation. And the solution is not to give up, but the solution is to understand that psychology and work with that psychology in order to enable the adoption. No? Yeah, yeah, makes sense, yeah. But still, I've seen CEOs that have uh, been kicked out of the company because they were too innovative. <laughs> that's, yes. that, that, that's yes. happened. Okay, yeah. but yeah, well, you bring in the board and the and the ownership structure and the investors mm. and what their products. That's a whole yeah. other layer of, yeah. of but, motivations. But, yeah, paradoxically, afterwards you can say that they were right. They actually were right, but they were too early. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's something true. like that. Timing is such a big, yeah. a big part of it. Yes, yeah. timing is a big part of it. But I think that you know, I think organizations are realizing that 
the ability to drive innovation internally to create, produce organic growth, you know, because the pace of change is accelerating. Um, we can't hold on to our core business as long as we could before. It 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 uh, commoditizes more quickly. That there is starting to be a shift in perspective, and that CEOs that are able to do that um, are the ones that are able to outperform. About your book, you outline a framework for innovation, and it's yeah. called Innovate, and the name e, uh, serves as a memory technique as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, letter, exactly. Letters yeah. stand for in, uh, the letters intent, need, option, value blockers, act, team, and environment. Yes. So, how how did this framework come about? Come about. So, you had about 150 internal innovators as I wrote this book, and I asked each one, among other questions. What do you see as the primary barrier to driving innovation from within, in your experience? And what tools or techniques have you used to overcome that barrier? And so I have—you can imagine an Excel sheet with 150 rows, and then I have columns where what they describe, you know, kind of lines up with a with a you know with one of the columns. And there were seven big barriers that were repeated much more often. And so then I kind of took those and then put them into a sequence. And and I don't and it, it, as you said the the in framework is not meant to be the truth. It's simply a memory tool. Um, all, all all models are wrong, you know, but some are useful. That's what I'm doing here. This is not. This is. I'm sure there's something wrong with it, but it's useful. And so that's how I was able to kind of squeeze it into a framework that hopefully people remember. I N O V A T E. Yeah, very good. Yeah. As you've done these interviews, so so can you mention any company or or examples of of some some of the companies who have actually used the kind of principles that you lay out on this uh, in uh, as this framework and have used them successfully? Yeah, um, so I, I drew the uh, framework from many companies, mm. and I've just published the book. So I'm starting to apply the framework. I've applied it in pieces, but I I, I can't point to a uh, company in which we've applied all seven and 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 gotten you know and 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 had it adopted. Um, but uh, you know, a, 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 as an example, I think that Mastercard is a good example of this. That Mastercard, if you look at their stock performance over the last 10 years, has uh, outperformed the market, outperformed its peers, and Mastercard has evolved from a uh, An association of banks, a financial service company, into a very vibrant, innovative, agile uh, fintech company. Um, and if you look at their innovation approach, they uh, touch on, on on all of these. Um, and I, I could go through through each of them, but you know, I, I think that um, the, uh, the the just as one example. Um, The the CEO he started talking about this idea that we are a force for good, and what he means by that is that we are driving for a world beyond cash. That's their strategy. That their 90% of transactions in the world are cash. Let's convert them to electronic, and then we will capture our fair share of that. And of course, Visa and and, and American Express will get others and things. But uh, but so that's the business rationale. But then he aligns it with. A world beyond cash is a very simple statement of a vision that also has a good social outcome, which is that 
it makes a better world that a drug dealer won't be able to sell uh, drugs to your child in a world beyond cash and have that not be traceable. A world beyond cash creates accountability. It creates financial inclusion. And so there's all this good stuff that comes from that vision. And what that really does is activates people to understand, you know, employees to understand where to innovate. And that's one of the big barriers. And that's what I, when I, and the N of innovate, which is need, the, the gap there is that most middle managers don't understand their company strategy. In fact, 55% of mid-level managers cannot name more than two of their company's top strategic priorities. So what we have is a very complex strategy that the board understands, the CEO understands, the top leadership understands, but you go just a couple layers down and people don't understand it. So when you ask them to innovate, they innovate in the wrong places. They come up with ideas that aren't aligned with the strategy. And so a very helpful thing to do and a critical thing to do if you're going to activate internal innovation is to make it clear for people what types of innovation the organization is looking for. Mm. It's simplifying. That's why I think these complex plans that are typical in large organizations are going to start simplifying into simple statements of purpose that clarify for everyone what types of innovations we should be pursuing. Now, you have this framework and you said that you are now implementing it. Uh, but yes. if, if any of our listeners buys the book, yes. how should they start using it? What, 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 what is the... Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it sort of depends. If you can, I, I wrote the book primarily for the internal innovator, right? mm. not for the CEO, not for the top mm. leader. Mm. Um, if you are the top leader, then what you do is you look at these seven blockages and you ask which is the primary one that's holding us back right now. It's kind of like a, a there's a dam with seven locks and we want to open up all the locks to get the innovation through. Which is the next lock to break through? Is it intent? People aren't innovating. Need? People don't understand the, the company strategy. Is it options? People aren't able to think disruptively. Is it value blockers? They're, they're bumping up. The ideas are now bumping up against the business model. Is it an act, which is people are asked to write business plans and not allowed to take action on ideas before they're fully vetted? Is it then team, which is then after you've activated, you've decided what action to take, can you pull together a cross-functional team from across silos? If you can't, you're never going to take any, we're not going to take action on the innovations. And then is it environment? Is, do you have the right combination of organizational structures and culture and talent and leadership? And so as a leader, I would say, identify which we're on that journey of those seven things is the next lock to unlock, right? As an internal innovator, this is what I'm really interested in because I think that we don't have to wait for the CEO to figure it out. That is not a very entrepreneurial, you know, approach, right? Mm -hmm. to, to wait for permission. So what you can do is you can say, okay, where am I on that journey? Do I have an idea yet or not? Do I understand the company's need yet or not? You know, and where, which step am I on? And then kind of turn to that chapter and say, okay, what's the next thing that I should do in that journey? So that's the primary way that I wrote the book. But um, as I speak more on it and do more consulting and uh, workshops on it, I often find leaders are, are, are wanting to apply it in the other way, right? How do I unlock these seven yeah, blocks? Yeah, that's very good because I, I thought that, that that's essential because if the leaders don't buy in 
th then it's really difficult. <laughs> yeah. If they don't understand. What, what, yeah, yeah. So no, it's uh, true. Uh, but, but I will say that many of the stories that I that I that I've read are yeah. uh, and, and that I and, and that I that I interviewed uh, about often the person is told no. Mm. Yeah. And then they go and do it. Yeah. You know, the, the person who developed the um, the London tube map that we is now so <laughs> famous, <laughs> he was told no like 30 times. He yeah. would draw one and he brought it to his bosses. They said no. Draw a new one. Draw it to, but each time he heard no, he went back and he took that as market feedback and understood what their concerns are and then improved his design. Right. So it does take that kind of persistence. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. Um, uh, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, when he was an employee at HP, he came up with the technology that would become the Apple computer and mm -hmm. proposed it five times and was rejected all five times. So eventually he quit, right? So being told no is, is, is unfortunately, you know, part of the journey. So I, I wouldn't think you, ha I, I think you don't have to wait. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, um, but about innovation in general, the idea of innovation and every every company being innovative is not necessarily the the, the norm in a way so um and and there are companies who are very happy and satisfied in in being followers should we innovate or or not is is there is there a choice anymore or should we always think about something something new that we have to come up with you know, I think that in different different uh, industries are uh, changing at different speeds. Mm. Uh, in, you know, in my in my analysis, I looked at innovative companies and how they perform against their peers. And what I found is that there are many innovative companies that are you know they're very innovative, but they don't outperform their peers when they're in very fast moving industries. So, for example, when you're competing against Amazon and Netflix and Google and Alibaba and Tencent, you have to be very, very innovative. But mm. that might just be table stakes, right? Mm, mm, mm. Um, if you're competing in slower moving industries, then it, the, the bar is lower. Mm. So you don't have to act uh, uh, revolutionary. Um, but what, 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 what the research shows is if that you can just be a little more innovative. And that, by that, I mean, increase the frequency of entrepreneurial behavior and and increase the degree of that entrepreneurial behavior, that has significant impacts on your revenue growth, your profit margin, your value creation. So it's really a relative question. Is mm. if, 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 if I were to score my competitors as a five, and if I can be a six, I will outperform them. Yeah. If I'm competing against Amazon, who's a 10, you know, mm. I, I need to be a 10, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh I've seen that many large companies have started um, creating internal startups and, and uh, internal, let's say, uh, incubation <laughs> kind of mm -hmm. models. Do you think that those work? I think that they work, but they are a step towards uh, what I think should be the ideal for most organizations, which to have is to have innovation more broadly, um, more broadly uh, dispersed. So um, there, there's a great model that helps, I think, under explain different types of innovation. It was developed by uh, a gentleman from Kellogg called Rob Walcott. And he said, 
you can look at your innovation program across two dimensions, right? You could say, do I have one big pocket of money dedicated to innovation, or do I have little pockets of money spread out around P&Ls, around little business units? And then on the other dimension, do I have a dedicated small group of people to run innovation, or do I ask everyone to innovate? So, you know, we go into it, but if we just think about the big pocket of money with a dedicated team, that looks like the Google X, uh, you know, uh, model where you're looking for the next multi-billion dollar opportunity, the long-term opportunity. I think that's the right approach for that kind of innovation, that high risk, high spend, um, big barriers to entry kind of innovation. Um, there are others who carve out their innovation uh, and they'll create an incubation team that is a dedicated team, but they don't have a lot of money. So they have to come up with innovations and then they have to go and try to get the funding from uh, P&Ls so that the P&Ls are committed early on, that there's a benefit of that. Uh, the benefit is that you already get the business unit owners on board with the innovation before it starts. And so as you need more investment, you're more likely to get it. The disadvantage is those are likely to be shorter term in nature. Uh, what I really think that we you need to add to the equation. So I think it's good to do both, but I really think that you need to add this dimension of everyone innovating, either with a dedicated pocket of money or not with a dedicated pocket of money. Uh, and I have found as you backtrack the, uh, the um, most impactful innovation society, they usually come from that other side where everyone is innovating and they're not told you're part of the incubation team, but they see something that the world needs, the company needs, that they're passionate about. And whether they have a dead pocket of money or whether they have to take the money in, 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 in little coins from here and there, uh, that is where, you know, that's where the internet came from. That's where solar energy uh, advances came from. That's where DNA sequencing came from, from that kind of innovation. Hmm. Yeah. I think that the next step for our listeners is to get get your book. So how can they how can they find it? I think the easiest way would be to uh, go to my website, uh, kaihan.net, K-A-I-H-A-N.net, uh, and there you can find a link to uh, the book, or you can go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books and just look up uh, uh, Driving Innovation from Within. So Kaihan, thank you very much for this opportunity to to talk to you and uh, hopefully we'll see here in in Finland one day. I would love that. Thank you for having me. 